0: Thanks, guys, for leading us in worship, and um, thanks, uh, Melissa, for um, leading us in some prayer in times of silence. We don't get a lot of that uh, in our lives, so it's good to do that together as a community of faith. Uh, Today, we are starting a new series as we enter into the season of Lent this week. Um, I'll say more about Lent if that's something new for you at the end of the message today. But when I tell you the topic that we're going to talk about uh, for the next seven weeks, the focus of the series, um, you're probably not going to love it. Okay. I'm just going to tell you that right (laughs) off. Uh, Nobody's going to say, finally, like this is the topic I've been wanting to talk about. Um, And that's because for the next seven weeks, uh, we're going to focus on and talk about sin. No amens to that one, all right? Um, So here's the reason. uh, I think one of the reasons we don't really like talking about sin is because we're uncomfortable with the language of sin. Several years ago, I purchased a book by uh, Teresa of Avila. Uh, Teresa was a Spanish mystic who lived in the 16th century. She wrote a number of works. This one is her uh, spiritual autobiography. It's called The Book of My Life. And it's a new modern English translation. It was originally written in Spanish. Um, So it's always helpful to have a good modern translation that we read. And in the introduction, the translator explains some of the choices that she made. And so here's what the translator writes. I sometimes substitute missing the mark and transgression for sin. I call the devil the spirit of evil and hoping to avoid alienating a vast number of potential readers. I have reduced Teresa's 10,000 self-deprecating statements about being a wretched worm to a fraction of that. <laughs> right. So even though uh, Teresa in her language uses this word and this language of sin and being a wretched worm over and over and over, that would be off putting to a modern audience because we're uncomfortable with this language. Now, why is that, right? Why don't we like to talk about this and why are we uncomfortable with this language? I think it's partly because most of us, when we do something wrong, we like to think about it more in the realm of a mistake or an error of judgment, um, because we all make mistakes. We all have errors of judgment. We all have weaknesses. We might even be willing to say we all have vices, Uh, Right? We're comfortable with that because that sounds normal. That sounds like that's what humans have and that's kind of innocent. But um, none of us are really trying to be a horrible person. And when we talk about sin, that's what it sounds like. Somebody who's a horrible person. Uh, For a lot of us, we're also uncomfortable with the language of sin because of the church or religious tradition that we grew up in. Right? Maybe you grew up in a church where that's all they talked about all the time and it felt like we were always being told how horrible and how wretched we really are and how sinful we are and that we can really only believe that God loves us if we first believe that he actually hates us. In fact, some of us maybe came from a religious tradition that described all of this with a big fancy theological term. It was called total depravity. We were told over and over and over, we are totally depraved. We are uh, utterly wretched and horribly sinful. And there were lots of passages of Scripture used to back this up, especially from this guy named Paul. We heard lots of sermons about this. And whether that was all true or not, more often than not, what it did was fuel two things. Two things that really destroy the human spirit, that eat away at our souls, that wreck our lives. Guilt and shame. And the more we heard about sin, the more we heard about total depravity, Right, the more guilty we felt and the more shame we felt. And a lot of us decided, I'm done with that. I don't need to hear that. And so we gave up on the Bible, if that's what the Bible teaches. We gave up on church, because if that's all they're going to talk about every time I show up. And some of us even gave up on God, especially a God who, I guess, has a love-hate relationship with us. But part of the reason that you're here uh, is because God didn't give up on you, and maybe you found a community of faith that is different, and maybe, as much as we need to let go of the guilt and the shame that we all carry, it's also hard to let go of this idea of sin completely. Because there is a lot of evil in the world, right? If you watch or read the news, you know we can't really talk about war and violence and racism and rape and oppression and justice. We can't talk about those things using the language of mistakes. Because we also all want healing in our lives. And we can't really pursue or experience true, genuine healing without actually talking about the wounds of sin, It's also hard to let go of this whole idea of sin because there is a pressing question that we all have and that we all ask from time to time. It's a question we cannot even begin to answer without this language of sin. In fact, it's a question that the Apostle Paul himself raised. In one of his letters, um, the letter to Romans, Paul talks about his journey of faith. Now, he talks about a whole bunch of stuff. Sometimes he's talking about the past. Sometimes he's talking about the present. He raises a whole bunch of big uh, theological sort of terms, and he's wrestling with a whole bunch of really big ideas. But I want to just read to you one little snippet from that letter this morning. Here's what Paul says about himself. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do you understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying, the things that I want to do, like I want to tell the truth. I know honesty is good. I know telling the truth to other people is good, and I want to do that, but then I don't actually do it. I end up lying to other people, and I know it's not good, but I lie. And so the things I keep doing are things I don't want to do. He goes on. He says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin, there's that word, sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. See, Paul uh, is saying there is this problem, and the problem is this thing that lives inside of me called sin. Goodness does not live inside of me. I wish it did. I thought it did. But apparently it doesn't. Or more specifically, he says goodness does not live inside of And the actual word he uses, he wrote this in Greek, the word he uses is literally flesh. It doesn't live in my flesh. But we also know he's not talking about literal, you know, the muscle tissue and fat tissue in our bodies. He's saying there seems to be this part of me that's dominated by this thing called sin. And it's that part of me, my sinful part or my sinful nature, that seems to dominate everything I do. He goes on and he says this, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So I find this law at work, or this principle, or this pattern, or this habit at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. See, Paul apparently has these feelings of guilt and shame as well. And maybe if you know something about Paul, you might be able to say, well, maybe it's the religious tradition he grew up in. If you know, he was actually a Pharisee. And so he was expected to be perfect and get everything right. And so maybe that's what's driving the guilt and the shame that he's feeling. But at least in this passage, in this letter, Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There's something else going on inside of me at the level of my will. And it's driving me crazy. And I'm guessing we can all relate to that, right? I mean, don't we have those days and moments in our lives where we want to do the right thing? We plan to do the right thing. We intend to do the right thing. And then we don't. And then on the flip side, right? Don't we have those days where we don't want to do the wrong thing, right? I'm not going to buy that thing today. I'm not going to let her push my buttons. I know she's going to, but I'm not going to let it happen, right? I'm not going to be sarcastic today. I'm not going to click on that thing today. I'm not going to lose my temper today. I'm not going to give in to that temptation today. And then we go do the very thing that we said we weren't going to do. And it's almost like no matter how good our intentions actually were, there was some other power at work in us. And we just couldn't resist it. And that's what Paul is describing. And all he can conclude is, what a wretched man I am. Teresa of Avila felt the same way. She calls herself this wretched worm over and over. And this is how she actually starts her autobiography. She starts with these words. There was no valid reason for me to be so wicked. My parents were righteous people who revered God, and God granted me the option of being good as well. I had all the help I needed to curtail my negative tendencies, but I was incorrigible. <laughs> incorrigible means, right? Incapable of doing anything about it. Incapable of changing. I had every reason to be a good person. I had every t- opportunity to do the right thing. I just didn't, and I just couldn't. There was some other power at work inside of me. Now note, uh, Teresa and Paul are not struggling with the question, do I sin or not? That's not a question for them, and I'm guessing uh, that would be a question for any of us as well, right? Even if we don't love the language of sin, every single one of us would admit there's things we do that we don't want to do, right? There's things that are hurtful or harmful to myself, to other people in our world, that we do that we don't want to do. There's also plenty of things that would be good for us. There's things that would be good for other people. There's things that would be good for our world, and we don't always do those things. So the question is not, do we sin or not? The question that that Paul is getting at, the question that Teresa will struggle with, the most pressing question that we all feel and ask is this. Why do we sin? Why do we keep making choices that are harmful for either us or for other people? Why do we keep doing things that cause wounds, that just gonna bring more guilt and more shame and consequences that we're gonna have to deal with later? Why do we sin? Uh, I've talked about a guy named Augustine before. I love this guy named Augustine. He lived a long time ago. He lived in the fourth and fifth centuries, and he actually became a brilliant theologian. He's probably one of the most uh, greatest and influential thinkers in Western history, but when he was young, Augustine was not a Christian. Uh, He did not grow up with faith. In fact, he lived a pretty wild life. Uh, He grew up in Northern Africa. Um, He may have looked something like this. Right? There's Augustine, right? Uh, He actually partied a lot as a teenager. Uh, He hung out with a whole bunch of hooligans. Um, He was promiscuous sexually. And as he got older, he studied all kinds of different philosophies and religious ideas because he was searching for truth about life and about the world, and not just intellectually searching. I mean, he was smart and he was intellectually searching, but he was experientially searching. He he was trying to do and experience everything he could to figure out what true life was all about. In fact, he said his heart was restless. It just kept seeking and searching. Now, there's one story in particular that Augustine tells, and this is when he was a teenager, 16 years old. He says this. There was a pear tree near our vineyard, heavily loaded with fruit that lacked both color and flavor to tempt us. Some of us worthless young boys went late uh, one night to shake the tree and steal the pears, having prolonged our games in the streets till then, as our disgraceful habit was. We took huge loads of these pears, not to eat ourselves, but to throw it to the hogs. All we did was taste them, and it pleased us all the more to do this because we were doing something forbidden he goes on he says what did I miserable as I was in that 16th year of my life love so much about stealing that deed of darkness stealing he says you weren't beautiful you were just stealing but are you anything at all that I should argue with you in this way The pears that we stole were pleasing to look at because they were your creation. Now he's talking to God. You who are the most pleasing of all, creator of all, God of goodness, God, the highest good and my true good. And then he says, those pears were pleasant to the sight, but my soul didn't want them. I had ample quantities better than those. I picked them only in order to steal. And when I had stolen them, I threw them away. My only gratification was my own sin that I was pleased to enjoy. And so now I ask, Lord, my God, what was it in that stealing that delighted me? In other words, why did I do it? Why did I steal these pears? Now, in another section of his A memoir, um, Augustine says the reason that we usually sin is because we're jealous of somebody, or we're envious of something, or we're angry about something, or we want to get revenge about something. But stealing the pears opened up this deeper question for Augustine. Stealing the pears did not satisfy anything he actually wanted. Right? He wasn't poor, he didn't need them, he wasn't hungry, they didn't taste very good, he ended up throwing them away, he wasn't mad at his neighbor, he wasn't trying to get back at them. And so he asks, why did I do it? And so begins a journey in Augustine's life to figure this out. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do and not do the things that I do want to do? Why do we sin? So this is the main question. Why do we sin? That we're going to ask over the next seven weeks. Uh, But this question actually entails a couple of other questions. So second, what exactly is sin? And you and I might think we know the answer to this, but maybe we don't. Right? What if the ways that we've answered this question in the past, or what if the ways that uh, religious people sometimes answer this question actually contributes to the guilt and the shame that we often feel? What if we've missed the mark when it comes to answering this question? What if there's a whole lot more to the idea of sin than we think? A final related question is this. Where did sin come from? Now, there's an easy uh, Sunday school answer to this that many of us learned if you grew up in church. In fact, Stephen alluded to this last week, right? We learned it came from Adam and Eve. That's the problem here, right? They're the ones who first sinned. It's all their fault. It's because of the fruit that they stole in the Garden of Eden. Now, at best, that's an insufficient answer. It's certainly unhelpful, right? At worst, it's potentially misguided, And harmful. Because see, for Augustine, the problem is not that his human ancestors stole some fruit a long time ago. The problem is he's still doing it for no good reason. It's not that the fall happened, it's that the fall is happening and still happens. And so we're gonna dive deep into these three questions. Over the next few weeks, we'll have a few conversation partners. Maybe we'll come back to Augustine and Teresa and a few others. But our primary conversation partner will be this guy named Paul and what he writes about all of this in the book of Romans. Which means if you've ever read some or part of this book before, you know this might be a more theologically dense series. And I think that's important to do from time to time. But there's always a danger in that. Uh, the danger is this could become an intellectual or a theoretical or a, a theological uh, discussion only. And that's why it's good to talk about this during the season of Lent. So let me wrap up today by just saying a few things about Lent. And this is really important because uh, Lent seems weird to outsiders. <laughs> and by outsiders, I mean anyone who hasn't really celebrated it or observed it or didn't grow up in a tradition. And that was me. I grew up going to church all my life, but the church I went to, we didn't do Lent. That's something that other people did, and it was kind of weird. And I knew there were some rituals associated, but I didn't really understand it. And so it was just odd to me. And so if that's you, that's totally normal. So let me real quickly explain what Lent is about and why it's been significant for us as a community of faith over the years. Um, First, Lent is simply a season of 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So it's been observed by Christians for over 1,500 years, and it's a way of preparing ourselves, our hearts and our lives and our wills, to remember and celebrate what happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So in a sense, it's really not that different than the days leading up to Christmas. I mean, think about all of the things we do In November and December, before and leading up to Christmas, I mean, some of us even go outside and we cut living trees down and we bring them inside of our houses and we hang little trinkets on them that we only pull out of boxes once a year. And then we put, like, that is a weird ritual when you think about it, but we all do this. So there's all these rituals that we do leading up to fully engaging and celebrating Christmas Day. And that's really what Lent is. It's this 40-day period of preparation to fully immerse ourselves in what we're going to remember and celebrate on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So it's a season of preparation. Um, Second, Lent is about repentance and renewal. And we'll say a whole lot more about these two things in the days to come, but repentance just means turning away from our sin. That's why it's important to talk about what actually sin is and why we do it. And then renewal is experiencing the grace and forgiveness and life that God has to offer. So repentance is what we do. Renewal is what we experience and what God does. Third, uh, Lent is grounded in practices. So historically, followers of Jesus have engaged in physical, uh, tangible, bodily practices during these 40 days. Uh, The most common practices are to give something up, And to take something up. So so giving something up just means to take a break from something in your life. Something that's maybe a bad habit or something that's become detrimental to you. Or maybe just something that's become overly important in your life. It could be uh, video games. It could be online betting. It could be your phone. It could be a type of food. It could be a type of drink. It could be anything like that. Uh, Taking up means to engage in a new practice during the season of Lent. Maybe it's spending a few minutes in prayer. Every morning. Maybe it's going for a walk outside for 20 minutes every day. Maybe it's eating all of my meals slowly. Maybe it's spending intentional and dedicated time with God or with other people in my life. And and it's not just about the thing you're giving up or the thing you're taking up. It's that giving something up actually represents the larger posture in my life of repentance And the thing that I'm taking up represents the larger desire in my life to experience God's presence and renewal. And so this is a really important part of Lent. And if you've never done this, give it a try this year. And if maybe you've done this a whole bunch of times in your life, then try it again this year and ask God to show up in a new way. Finally, uh, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday this week. So I invite you to join us for an Ash Wednesday service at 7 p.m. on this Wednesday. And again, if you are new to all of this, if you've never been to an Ash Wednesday service, it sounds a little weird. Are there going to be ashes there? Yes, there will. What are we going to do? Like, what's going on? We'll explain that. It's not that strange. It's actually deeply significant and important. And so I want to encourage you to come because we just believe this season is more significant in our lives when we enter into it intentionally and when we enter into it together as a community of faith. So I hope you'll consider joining us this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Let me pray for us, and then we'll continue in worship. God, we acknowledge um, that all of us, in our own ways, in our own unique ways, are probably like Augustine. We want all that life has to offer. We want to experience goodness. We want to experience health. We want to experience uh, success. We want to experience life, joy, happiness, contentment we want, all of those things. And yet, as we said earlier, um, we often lose our way. And we don't see the path. And so I pray today that you would help us find our way back to the path and that you would help us to know that life is found in you and in your love for us. I pray all this in your name. Amen.